You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Hey, hey, this is Jess O'Reilly, your friendly neighborhood sexologist here with my partner, Brandon Ware. Hey, everybody. And I want to say thank you to you for tuning in. And of course, before we get started, a big thanks to Desire Resorts. Check them out. Get naked. Have a good time. No pressure. No, you don't have to get naked, but you can get naked. You can. Once you've swam sans bikini, you are not going to want to swim in a swimsuit again. I don't know. I think I like swimming in a bikini. It feels really good. You don't even know what it's like. Brandon's so afraid that fish are going to bite his junk. I'm not that afraid, except one time something did bite my nipple, for real. That was me. No, it was not you. Well, there was no proof that a fish bit his nipple. How do you get proof? Do I have to? Do they have to draw blood? I, I want to see fish bite marks. Okay. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about sex positive parenting and raising kids who are sexually aware, who understand consent, who are kind and empathetic and prepared to be in happy relationships as they get older. And I come from a teaching background. I am in this field because I was a high school teacher. I saw firsthand the costs of an education system that was not meeting the needs of our young people. So I had students coming to me with reports of sexual assault. I had students coming to me with unplanned pregnancies, many of them. I had students coming asking where to get the morning after pill, talking about the condom breaking. I had students who, because I was teaching teenagers, were living with partners already or in abusive relationships. I feel like if you don't, live that reality you don't realize how prevalent it is i'm not a teacher and i never have been and i feel like you're you're insular in terms of your network and who you hang out with and because those people don't share that and they don't come to you mm-hmm. often mm-hmm. i'm not saying it doesn't happen occasionally but to hear this regular occurrence from you about students and young adults it's surprising how frequent and how common I think it really is. Right. And it was every week. It wasn't like a one-off thing. Now, when you were a kid or when you were a teen, like, did you ask anyone questions? I didn't really ask anybody questions. I mean, my experience growing up was, and I'm not old, man. I'm 41. But, but I, not young. But I'm not young. Not for <laughs> real. That, thanks. I feel good. But the, the reality is, is that I predate access to you porn or any of these other you know porn hub and you know seeing porn i remember a friend of mine who he found this like vault of porn at his parents house and it was mind-blowing it was just hang like, on a vault it was crazy are you sure you're much. only 41 okay, it was yeah okay it wasn't a vault but it was many <laughs> filing cabinets full of porn and we were like what it was like hitting the jackpot and how old were you probably like 15. What'd you do with it? We consumed hours of porn and I probably had to mentally store things to take home with me to, to, um, self-pleasure later on. But it was great. Like, listen, I watched the squigglies late at night, man. No one knows what that is except for like a few dozen people were at one o'clock in the morning 
on cable television, they used to put porn would come on on channel like 97 or 102. And every now and then you'd see like a squiggly nipple through and you'd hear the, the, the actors in the background getting it on. You're like, oh, yeah. Every now and then you get the jackpot there and you'd get like a free video. It was mind blowing. The satellites was... would align. NASA <laughs> was, would mess no, up. The stars would align, man. Are you kidding me? Call it the squigs. Well, it was a de-scrambled from a satellite, oh, I think. When that happened, or you had to watch fashion television just to see a nip, see maybe see a nipple, a nip slip. We just didn't have access to anything. Now it's ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You can't. <laughs> I searched like properties for sale in Toronto, and somehow a porn site pops up. Well, that sounds like a lie. <laughs> well, but you get you get what I'm saying. I do, I do. And so young people have access to porn, and people are very concerned about this access. And that's why sex education and talking about porn matters more than ever because young people have access to more images, more video, more data than they ever have in human history. And what they require is context. And they need conversation. And so we're here to talk about it. Joining us today to talk about raising sexually healthy kids, how to talk to your kids about sex, is the founder of sex positive families, Melissa Pinter Carnegie. And I have been following your work, admiring your work, learning from your insights for quite some time now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And can you tell us your story? You are a sex educator. You're a social worker. How did you get into this field specifically? Yeah, so it's been a journey of a little over a decade. I started out, um, it, it was from a draw of a hat, really, in my undergraduate social work class, which was uh, about maybe 12 years ago now. And I, we had to do a paper that had to do with a certain population. And I drew from the hat uh, the population of uh, HIV and AIDS. So what services were available in our area for that? I'd already grown up without realizing it with just a real interest in uh, the HIV community. You know, I grew up during a time when movies were coming out and books were coming out about um, the HIV virus. And um, so it just, it, it was a good fit in that respect. But what I learned when I researched what was going on in our particular area was just how disproportionately um, the black community is impacted by HIV. And of course, my, myself being um, a black individual person of color, I uh, very much was drawn to, you know, what are those reasons and um, how can I, how can I, you know, be a part of, of, of change and what, what could possibly, you know, make things uh, different. And so then that catapulted me into internship, uh, with an aid service organization and then work and so that was really how i got into sexual health and it centered adults and so i did that for a decade uh, in the nonprofit sector and then in state government as a consultant and then i just kind of hit a wall you know i was uh, working a lot more in cubicle environments and uh, you know doing some traveling across the state of texas but i felt like i just had an itch that my creativity and the impact that I wanted to have uh, in serving folks around sexual health uh, was was greater than what was what I was kind of feeling limited to, and so I took a brave step of stepping out of that and uh, stepping toward uh, working with families uh, because 
another big part of my story is that I'm a parent and I've been a parent for um, 20 years now. I was a young parent. And so raising children to, uh, with an attention to their sexual health um, has been something personally that has been important to me because I grew up like many of us uh, adults of today without great sex education, uh, with very um, silenced culture at home around talking about sex. And so I, I knew that I wanted to make sure that my children had more information and more support around that. So that's really where I, my transition to working with families, focusing on children and supporting parents. So I was, I've been able to marry my professional experience uh, as a social worker in the field of sexual health and seeing how sexual health impacts quality of life. And then my personal experience of raising children, you know, firsthand to be sexually healthy. Uh, and that's, but that's really how sex positive families um, has been born. Now you talk about your children, how old are your children and how would you say you are raising them differently than people perhaps who don't have the same background that you, you know, that you have the privilege to have learned from? Yeah. So my oldest will be 20 <laughs> next month, actually, which is wild. Time goes by really fast. Out of the woods. <laughs> I, well, you know, I, in, in her senior year of high school, I kind of had like this, this moment where I was like, oh, I could have, I could have been free. You know, you're, it's just a mix of emotions. Anyone who, you know, has a, a child that's transitioning out of high school. Um, and that was one of the thoughts because I also have a nine-year-old. I have a nine-year-old son. And then my partner and I have a, a bonus, I have a bonus son who's five years old. So we're, you know, kind of all over the place in terms of the ages and the stages. And uh, with my daughter in particular, um, she's girl identified and I knew that it was just so important that she understood her body and that she understood her rights to pleasure. And so in her earlier years, um, we read a lot of books that um, centered, you know, body awareness. And uh, back then it was, you know, It's Not the Stork was the popular one. This was before the great books that uh, Corey Silverberg has uh, that are more inclusive. Um, but, you know, just normalizing getting to know her body and making sure that she had a confidence around talking about these topics. And we've just progressed as she's uh, grown up through different stages, just our conversations have evolved, the ways in which I meet her curiosities and the um, different experiences that she has, uh, just being a support, being an ear and allowing her the space to explore how she navigates the world um, and as it relates to her her body autonomy and her sexuality. And you use the word words right to pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think when some parents hear the word pleasure, it's scary to them because when we think of old school sex education, it was all scare tactics. But why do you see pleasure as integral to raising sexually healthy kids who will grow into adults who can have sexually healthy relationships. Why is pleasure so important? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we know what's pleasurable to us as human beings, we are able to then also identify what's not pleasurable to us. And that really runs up against, you know, safety and consent. And so making sure that children have that space to explore what their body tells them in moments that 
will have nothing to do with sex, you know, early on. And that's, that's the challenge that a lot of uh, parents may have is they're, if they're equating adult sexuality or eroticism to the concept of pleasure. Um, but pleasure is really um, something that should be accessible to everyone, uh, you know, as a human right, and that it is something that is experienced um, even in the womb. And, and then as in infancy, um, and often that's realized through attachment that a caregiver will have with an infant. Um, and then, you know, it just progresses. And then when it gets to something like masturbation, which, you know, can feel like a, a sensitive or touchy or awkward topic, maybe for, you know, some parents, which would be totally normal because our societies definitely, you know, really over-sexualize and, uh, and make sex a, a taboo um, and shame-based topic. But really sexuality is lifespan. And so when you see that that way, that it's not something that you age into, you know, or that it's just for teens and adults, that sexuality is something that, that is evolving and exists uh, for, at a very early age. And so parents being able to help support that is supporting safety so that Children grow to have healthy, satisfying, consensual, pleasurable sex lives. And I think there's a fear for many parents that their child will ever be sexual. So I appreciate that reminder that this is a lifespan experience as opposed to something that is a, you know, a debut, a debut at a certain age. And you talk about pleasure being inherent to understanding consent. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you talk in the past about building a culture of consent at home. And as a sex educator, I know that people think we're always talking about sex when in fact, we're often talking about communication, boundaries, bodily autonomy, uh, speaking up, speaking when you like something, when you don't like something. And I, I often talk about cultivating foundational skills that have nothing to do with sex that you eventually transition into sexual relationships. So when you say building a culture of consent at home, what do you mean by that? What's a specific way you can build a culture of consent that may not in fact have to do with sex from the onset? Yeah. So uh, one rule that we have in our home is that no one has to ever say the words no or stop or anything that's setting a boundary more than once. So no matter what, if someone sets a boundary, um, then that's respected and listened to. There's no such thing as like, oh, come on. You know, there, there's none of that kind of manipulation um, that happens. And again, that has nothing to do with sex and very much just about body boundaries. Um, another one is that we ask permission for things like hugs or you know forms of affection, kisses. So may I give you a hug is something that I say every day, and my child says every day, um, uh, my son, and this is, this is how we understand that our bodies are ours, and we don't have the right to other people's bodies, and no one has the right to our bodies. Um, and so it's just like little, little things like that, and then like at the dinner table, when, when he's had enough, or if he wants more of a certain food or meal, um, then he has a voice and he has the right to communicate that. And then that's, you know, again, that communication piece, if, if there are limits uh, around how much food or anything, that's a discussion, you know, that we have. Otherwise he, he feels um, able 
and uh, entitled to have that voice to communicate what his body is telling him at any given time. So we're not forcing him to eat anymore, um, or we're not restricting, you know, things uh, to the point where he's not, he's feeling like his body is uh, being directed by someone else. I love the idea that, uh, you know, building a, a culture of consent at home, but I can picture people right now rolling their eyes <laughs> thinking about a parent asking their child if I can hug them. Mm. So how did you introduce this? Just because I'm, I'm like a lot of people out there that, you know, do not do this at home may think, how am I going to even begin this process? And, and I think some people feel entitled to their... Oh. To the, yeah. So how do, you, how do you even confront that entitlement within yourself? Because if you are somebody, for instance, listening who thinks, well, we're taking this too far, or you feel that it's a bit of an old guard, because I, I could see, for instance, people in my family responding that way, and I would be willing to go up against them. But how, how do we introduce this in a way uh, that people might be open to considering this new perspective? Yeah. So... One thing that has really come up in, in this work, I mean, it, it centers uh, parents and caregivers, but something that has been extraordinary to see, especially through the social media platforms, is how many adults who don't even have children or you know, see themselves as caregivers of children um, are saying, wow, these concepts are really taking me back to my childhood and some experiences that I had. Um, tickling is one of the topics that really does that for people, where they see that there were specific moments or specific ways in which they, were, they grew up and they were forced to, um, to be in positions of, of you know, touch with other people that they really truly in their gut, in their own instincts, didn't feel safe or comfortable uh, or desired, desired to do that. And so what I have found effective is when people can really take a look at their own journey, their own history around these different things and what that's looked like. And more often than not, people can identify some early experiences that they had where they truly didn't get to have a voice around their body. And um, again, may have had nothing to do with sex. Um, and I think this is where we see the Me Too movement right now with our current generation of adults uh, being so you know, prevalent and so many people impacted by this across you know, all gender identities um, because there just has not been that emphasis early on, that foundation that sends the message that children you know, are not toys, they're not playthings, they're not for others to um, to direct or have ownership over that they truly are separate and whole individuals. Yes, if we're in a parenting or caregiving role, we will be positioned to um, provide levels of care for them until they can independently do so. Um, but um, they, they are separate and whole. And if we really want to prepare them and to keep them safer and to position them for safety and safer interactions with others, then are being able to help them practice those skills and practice the communication at home starting early is, is the best, most effective way to do that. So we really have to take ego out of that as parents um, and, and create the space that allows our young people to really shine and, and feel confident within their, their, their selves. So talking about 
uh, you know, introducing these concepts and sex education at home with your children. I mean, we don't have children. I can only reflect on my own personal experience growing up. I went to a Catholic high school. I'm not Catholic. We were, we were literally taught the rhythm method. My parents at home were, and if you're not familiar with the rhythm method, obviously not you necessarily, but people out there, it was like time it around the woman's menstruation cycle. Mm -hmm. And being 15 and learning that was crazy. And, and that certainly doesn't account for uh, other concerns like STI transmission. Yeah, definitely. And my parents would say, and I'm not faulting them because they were likely extremely uncomfortable, but they said to me, this was the sex ed, don't come home with a kid. It wasn't about STIs. It wasn't about anything else. It wasn't about comfort, pleasure, any of those concepts. It was don't come home with a kid. And that's funny because I still say that to you, babe. Don't, yeah. don't come home with come a kid. Home with a kid. <laughs> so when you talk about introducing pleasure, that was it. I don't think it was ever on the radar for my parents. So at what point do you start introducing these concepts? Because I think this red flag goes off with a lot of the friends that I have that have young children where there is this fear that, oh my gosh, the sex, sex ed curriculum is changing. And now they're teaching my kindergarten child about anal sex and the pleasure associated with that or about all of these topics and, and it's a fear of the unknown. So how do you go about introducing these concepts at different ages with children? Yeah, so it definitely is a progressed conversation. You know, um, you know the example, for example, of like anal sex and kindergarten, um, that those two things wouldn't so much match up definitely within the earlier years of the preschool and kindergarten you know first second grade those are more those foundations of you know what do healthy relationships friendships what do those things look like what do unhealthy um, friendships and relationships look like what are our body parts right what are their functions um, so it really isn't um, at the earlier at the earlier ages about uh, sex ed, as people might, you know, see it around the topic of sex, but it then progresses into that. And yes, you talk about, um, as you move through, you talk about things like menstruation um, and those uh, particular um, puberty and body changes. Um, and then again, gender, gender identity and how those, um, how those things are shaped within um, the world and gender messaging and stereotypes. Um, but one thing that I, I, I think many parents, um, when you put it into this context, it really can't be disputed that the world around us is not waiting, you know, when it comes to, to children. So lots of children these days are growing up with devices, you know, cell phones and iPads and YouTube and access to things at their fingertips. And so it's so critical um, that we are setting open conversations, a space that's not uh, rooted in shame or fear, um, so that they come to us. They feel comfortable coming to us as their, as their primary sex educators, essentially, and as people that if something were to happen to them that was unsafe or uncomfortable, or if they were to see something online or through a phone, and even if it's a phone of peers, if they're going to school outside of the home, you may have the best restrictions at home, right? The most effective restrictions. But if they're leaving your home and they're going to family members' homes or they're going to school, you know, riding school buses, all of those things, rest assured that they're going to be exposed to television and devices. And we know that porn, you know, mainstream porn like Pornhub is 
is just a click away for, for young people. And so That's how are we preparing them to understand the things that they're seeing or that they may hear from their peers so that they're not learning incorrect or toxic messaging around these things? That's right. So when a young person has a question, it behooves us to answer that question because if we do not answer that question, they are not going to the Encyclopedia Britannica on your shelf. They are going to, we know, for instance, in Canada, the number one site for young people is YouTube. They are going to YouTube, Facebook, and Google, and they may not find the answers that you would like them to find there. In fact, there are going to be many distractions. And I can tell you, even in my work as a sexologist, sometimes I will Google something looking for articles and the images and videos that pop yeah. up are not safe for my work. So mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily appropriate for a young person. And I want to finish by talking to you about porn because I appreciate the way you break things down in terms of how to have a conversation with young people. We know that young people are encountering porn. We know that in the absence of effective comprehensive sex education, young people and adults alike are turning to pornography as a form of sex education. So how do we talk to young people about porn and when do we start? Yeah. Um, so uh, something that that people may not know. So aside from kind of my history working in sexual health and then doing sex positive families and having Um, kids that I raise, I also teach um, every single week, I'm teaching currently sixth, seventh, and 12th graders um, sex education. And so the beautiful thing with that is that I am privy then to all of their great curiosities. Uh, And I'll tell you, porn is something that comes up very regularly. And not just uh, porn, but a lot of the associated messages um, that porn can't mainstream porn can send uh, because a lot of young people are turning to this like you're saying in order to get uh, information and and they're gaining uh, perspectives and perceptions uh, about what bodies should look like about what sex should look like Um, we know that of course mainstream porn doesn't do a good job of showing any kind of safety practices around you know sex in terms of sti or pregnancy prevention Um, and so the messaging really has to start early and when i say early um, if you're giving a device or a child has access to a device or independent access you know to time with um, you know television or any of those things then it's a good time to talk with them in terms of responsibility and in terms of you know what images or messages that they may see at any given time so your earlier conversations maybe when they're around you know seven eight nine may not directly relate to porn you know you may not necessarily be uh, introducing that but sexually explicit media is another term so that that we tend to use and so what messages are they seeing what images are they seeing around you know bodies and around nudity and all of that stuff and so so really, it, it again is an evolving conversation, so that it's it's less likely to be awkward because they see you already as someone that they can come to and turn to. Um, so being able to kind of just uh, open up that space to talk about it. So saying, you know, I I was online the other day and something popped up, you know, and it was and it it uh, you know was a a naked image of of a person, and it just really made me think like that wasn't something I was searching for, but it really made me think about 
the times that you might be online. Has that ever happened to you? I'd love to talk about that. And so if you just like, you know, how you can frame it so that it becomes like a safe and just really genuinely curious way of approaching what have they seen already or what might they see, um, you'd be surprised how much they may share with you if you've created that open space about that. Um, and it can lead to them sharing, oh yeah, my friend so-and-so, you know, had this on their phone. And it just gives you, it's that door that opens up to their world. I appreciate that you're asking what they have seen and what they know or how they feel, because that's a dialogue as opposed to uh don't you dare. Don't mm -hmm. you look at that. That's for adults. Uh, th that might be a part of the message that, yes, it's certainly attended, uh, intended for adults, but the dialogue is, is so important. And so I think if you're laying the groundwork from a young age, you're already on the right path. If perhaps you've been more tentative, more nervous, and you haven't started from a younger age, and maybe your child is a little bit older now, how can you open that conversation? What specific language would you suggest if either you believe your child is watching porn or you've seen them watching porn? How might you respond to that when they're, you know, let's say 12, 13 years old? Yeah, I always say honesty. Honesty and vulnerability um, are two things you want to keep in your toolkit when it comes to parenting, um, and certainly parenting in a sex positive way. So if you realize uh, that you might have been creating a home culture that hasn't been so open around these topics, um, it's, children really understand um, and can tap into empathy. And so just a moment where you're feeling compelled to, t to bring this up, just come to them and, and make sure that, you know, this, that it's at a time and in a space where, you know, you're not distracted, you two are not distracted on, with any other things um, or on the defensive, and just say, you know what, I really wanted to talk to you about something. I realized that we may not have done the best job of talking together about some topics. Um, and I really want to, to do better with that. I also tell parents that storytelling can be really powerful. And so if, for example, because uh, a lot of times parents are operating from their own narrative, um, if they're feeling really, um, um, really afraid to open up these conversations and not sure how, many times that may be because they grew up with really repressive or restrictive um, home cultures around talking about these things. So sharing with the, ch with the child, uh, the teen, just saying, you know what, I've struggled to talk to you about these things because when I was growing up, you know, your grandparents, I didn't have a home that we could talk about this, but I'd like to do differently. I want to make sure that you're prepared for the things that you might see or for your future when you decide to, you know, step into sex with other people. And so just kind of starting from a really vulnerable place so that again, it's a dialogue, it's a conversation, um, and then opening it up to, you know, I really want to talk to you about porn. You know, what, what do you already know about porn? And then silence, let them, you know, speak. And, and if it's been a household where this has not been something open, it would not be unusual that the child may not give a lot initially because they've already adapted to an environment where these things aren't safe to talk about. But that's just feedback. That doesn't mean you stop there or that, oh, this is too weird. Instead, say, I get it, that this probably is going to feel maybe a little uncomfortable at first because we haven't talked about this. Um, but I'd love for us to try and say, well, you know, here's, I want to make sure we're on the same page. Here's what porn is. You know, porn is entertainment. It's not sex education. And I want to make sure that you get some facts around porn. And then, you know, open up that conversation. 
And even if that first time you talk about it, there's more silence on their end, you've planted a seed. And so rest assured, if you keep kind of finding those opportunities and those teachable moments, that they'll be more likely to come back to you and kind of test, engage you as a support. I really appreciate that because it's not a one-time conversation. And when we were kids, you know, they used to joke about having the talk, but mm-hmm. this is an ongoing conversation and it applies similarly to relationships. Sometimes to work through an adult relationship, any issue, whether it's sexual or otherwise, it is not a one-shot conversation. So we can't afford to give up because we're uncomfortable yeah. that first time. Yeah. And on top of that, you make reference to awkward conversations. I mean, like how many times have we had uncomfortable conversations Mm -hmm. and so much positive has come out of it. But again, it's, 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 you know, starting this earlier sounds like it's the best thing that you can do or as early as possible. In fact, I saw an Instagram post of yours. Now, Sex Positive Families has a huge community, an active community. I know you have over 30,000 parents and adults who are really committed to the cause. But I saw a post about all the body parts, so penis, vulva, breasts, and all the language around it. And one of the best things I remember um, from another sex educator when I was in school being taught that if you can practice saying those words while you're changing them, when they're baby, they don't even understand you, it's not so much for them as it is for you because you can't talk about how, well, it's your head, your shoulders, your knees, your toes, and your penis. You just have to be able to say penis, penis, penis. When I train teachers, we sit in the classroom and we say penis and vulva over and over again until they get their giggles out. So everything you're saying really resonates with me. I'm such a fan of the work that you're doing. I know that you have a a guide to raising sexually healthy children across every age and stage on your website. So I encourage people to go to sexpositivefamilies.com. We'll be sure to link in all our social media. But before I let you go, if there's one thing that a parent can do today to improve the conversation, to deepen the connection so that they are raising sex positive children, where should they, where might they begin? I say just start. So today, think about, and again, kids from different you know ages, and so that connection may start and look differently, but as parents these days, we can be really busy, we can be um, really preoccupied and consumed in other directions, but all of this work is rooted in connection. And so, how, you know, thinking about how can you open up a space, and that can happen in a moment every single day, um, to where that connection has a safe place to land. And so asking questions, staying curious, um, getting to hear and listen um, and prioritize uh, what they have to say and what's going on with their day, what's going on at any time with their body, um, and, and just creating that connected culture at home. That's, that's a huge part of it. And so again, it may not have anything to do with sex right now or today, but that's that connection is what is going to make it safe for them to bring their curiosities your way or for you to initiate a new conversation every day. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I like that you said just asking them how they're feeling because those vulnerable conversations 
are good for everyone. They're laying the groundwork for healthy relationships as they grow into adults. And I'll keep following along and encourage everybody to follow along as well, sexpositivefamilies.com. Really appreciate your time and your insights. I know that Brandon was sitting here nodding the entire time. I was taking a lot of notes. I won't lie. Thank you, Thank you so much. But, but um, still, babe, yeah. don't bring a kid home. No, no kid. No, <laughs> don't bring a kid home. That was the lesson. I mean, they favorite. look like Lido. <laughs> yes, yes. Lido is our pup, and she, she's sitting right next to us. Thank you again. And um, wh- where can people find you besides sexpositivefamilies.com? Yeah, so on Instagram, sexpositive underscore families, or we have a Facebook page, um, facebook.com slash sexpositivefamilies. And like you said, a really active, engaged community of uh, people ready to raise sexually healthy children. Thank you again for being here. Thank you. I love the way Melissa's work focuses on how empathy plays a role. And every time I read her posts or listen to her speak, I'm reminded that The principles of of sex-positive parenting apply in relationships of all sorts, too. Her her advice really resonates with me as a non-parent because oftentimes when we avoid a conversation, whether it's with a child or with a partner or with a friend or with ourselves, our avoidance and our discomfort is rooted in our own shame, our own upbringing, our own experiences. So if something feels awkward... Usually, we need to look inward to consider how we're holding ourselves back. Is it, is it our own pain, our own shame, our own ego? And until we address this, we, we can't really have open conversations, whether it's with a child or with a partner. I mean, I was hanging out with friends recently, and their own discomfort, or rather, I shouldn't say discomfort, but their own inability to have these conversations with their children was really eye-opening because they wanted to. And it was only when they learned about how the information was being disseminated to their children that they felt even more comfortable and empowered by what was being taught to their children. Right. So this is the couple who is nervous about what was being taught in sex ed, but then they went into the school and they, they clarified it. Is and that correct? You know what? They're super progressive and yeah, like, of course. they've got such a healthy relationship with their children. And as soon as they were were informed as to what was being taught, they felt even better because I think it's like... Melissa was saying, it's really difficult to have those conversations if you don't know how to start. Right. And you know, when it comes to parenting, it's quite a task to be a sex educator if you receive no sex education yourself. It's difficult to talk about sex with your child if you're uncomfortable even talking to your partner. And it's hard to talk about, say, for instance, bodily consent if you're not really comfortable standing up for your own. And so... I think sometimes people's objections or trepidations with regard to comprehensive sex education are really rooted in in our own personal hang-ups. It's not necessarily about politics. But I want to talk about sex education across across the lifespan um, because it starts from day one. It's not about sex. It's about the body and safety and communication. And the skills your child develops in kindergarten may have nothing to do with sex, but they're foundational when they learn to stand up for themselves and be assertive, they'll know how to better communicate boundaries to a partner as they get older. When they learn to say yes and no to hugs, for example, or kisses from an aunt or uncle, they'll have the language to say yes and no to sexual advantages and to pleasure as they age. And when they learn to manage conflict with friends, because this starts at four years old or even younger, 
when they learn to manage these conflicts using their words and see positive outcomes, they'll be better equipped to negotiate relationship expectations as teens and as adults. And when they do eventually learn about sex, from safer sex to the fact that people do have sex for pleasure, they won't be rushing out into the streets to have it. I mean, a wealth of research confirms that talking about sex via comprehensive sex education does not hasten the onset of sexual activity. It can, however, increase the likelihood that young people will actually enact behaviors that promote positive outcomes. So for example, like speaking up to uh, speaking up with regard to boundaries and using condoms and using other barrier methods. And I am yet to encounter a parent who regrets talking to their child about sex and relationships, even if you're nervous. As Melissa says, use this nervousness as an opening to show vulnerability and let your kids know that it's okay to lean into uncomfortable feelings. If you avoid these conversations, you're conveying to them that if something's uncomfortable, avoid it. Well, there's this common thread that keeps popping up and we've talked about it for years where it's having these uncomfortable or seemingly uncomfortable conversations results in oftentimes in positive outcomes. And her piece of advice at the very end, which was just start. It doesn't matter if your children are, you know, three or four years old or if they're 14 or or 18 years old, but you have to start somewhere. I thought that was great. Like just start as awkward and as uncomfortable as it may seem to be i'm sure it will be a much more awkward or uncomfortable conversation when you find out that your child has um contracted an sti or has a child or has been abused or didn't know the boundaries and consent and has them violated right or is the violator yeah and and it's not always such an extreme outcome as as those examples you've given but i, I do hope too that you talk to your kids about porn because There are a few messages that I I like to convey when it comes to porn. So I usually like to ask students, like, well, what do you think, right? How do you feel? What what do you already know? Put the, you know, we call it student-centered learning in the classroom, but put the ball in their court. And then remind them that it's, it's normal to perhaps be attracted to these things. It's normal to find it arousing or titillating. And even though it's not intended for your eyes, it's intended for an 18 plus audience. And then please remind them that those are actors. Those are sexual athletes. Those are the Cirque du Soleil performers of sex because in real life, that's not always or even often what sex looks like. And young people can differentiate between fantasy and reality from a very young age. In fact, I think young people are better at differentiating between fantasy and reality when it comes to consuming media than adults are when it comes to consuming porn. So they can watch Spider-Man and know that they can't scale a building. They can watch NASCAR and know that, you know, mommy and daddy or daddy, any parent of any gender can't drive like that. Ricky Bobby, shake and bake. Shake and bake. Brennan, if you haven't, if you don't know the reference, it's Talladega Nights. It's highbrow humor. Uh, You know what? Nothing but the best. (laughs) If you're not first, you're last. So, so... I think it's just really important to convey to them that no matter how you feel about this, we just want you to know that in real life, this may not be what sex looks like. And if you have these expectations, they may not be realistic. That may not be realistic in terms of activities, in terms of body types, in terms of sounds, in terms of interactions. I talk all the time about the lack of realism of just delivering a pizza, throwing it down, 
bending them over and letting your pizza get cold. What kind of monster lets a pizza get that cold? How expensive pizzas are these days. You know, I really <laughs> like my thin crust pizza. But usually, sex involves some sort of conversation. So you, you do want to be talking to young people about porn, asking them what they know, not with judgment. If you just disallow, you know that's going to create an allure and an attraction that is even more intense for young folks. So I encourage you to continue following the work of Sex Positive Families. I find that their Instagram account and their Facebook community really offers practical how-to advice that is is manageable and um, it, it, you know encapsulated in short for, form. So it offers the shorthand for people looking for you know quick advice to to, to common questions, because if you're running into it with your child, other people are running into it too. It's not like you have the one deviant out there. We're all a bunch of deviants. So I'm going to stop there with a big thank you to you for listening. Thanks, babe, for joining in. Thanks. Learned so much today. It was really great. Thank you to Melissa from Sex Positive Families and to Desire Resorts, wherever you're at. I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope whether you're a parent of a young child, an older child, or no child at all, that some of the, you know, some of the insights shared resonate with you. Have a lovely week. We'll be back next Friday with a new episode. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.